One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Karen Puglesi, professor of journalism at Ryerson University, former APTN news boss, former president of the Canadian Association of Journalists. Last time you were here, I got sued. Welcome back. <laughs> oh my God, that wasn't my doing. <laughs> what, a, what an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> You're not named in the suit. So listen, today we're going to talk about Batman's secret identity revealed. Turns out that he's a homicidal lobster fisherman from Nova Scotia. Who knew? <laughs> We're going to talk about uh, about the CBC. Karen, does the CBC's president really live in Brooklyn? I mean, I, I, I guess that depends on what you mean by living, you know? I mean, are any of us really living in these dark days of pandemic? <laughs> I mean, you promised we were never going to fight in front of the kids, Jesse. Okay, we'll talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> We are also going to talk about uh, a person who committed a murder but got convicted of manslaughter. Justice is served in Thunder Bay, but the portions are so small. Welcome back. Thank you, Jesse. Jesse. 
This episode is brought to everybody by April Montague, Matthew McComb, Jillian Mackey, Lori McCauley Littlejohn, Matt Speckert, Nancy Payne, Colin Watts, and Rick. This is Rick in New Brunswick. I support Canada Land because it opens my mind to stories I likely wouldn't otherwise hear about and challenges me to think outside the mainstream. Karen, uh, remember the wild story about this escalating war between rival lobster fishermen in Nova Scotia? Yes, only I, I do object to calling it a war because the violence is only going one way. Usually in a war, it goes two ways, right? But please, pray continue. Yeah, that is an excellent uh, point that uh, I did not consider. It's it's rising tensions. I'm just trying to avoid news cliches. It was a wild story here, this, this David and Goliath conflict where a tiny group of Mi'kmaq fishermen got tired of waiting for the federal government to deliver on what they were legally promised many years ago. They do have a right to make a living. It's defined as a moderate living by fishing for lobster. So they just began exercising that right. They sent out a few dozen small boats to set a small number of lobster traps. And holy shit, there is this massive commercial lobster fishing industry in Nova Scotia. And some of the fishermen who work in it just like lost their minds. They flipped out and we saw videos of flare guns being shot at the indigenous fishermen, traps being cut, their boats were burned and sunk. Customers who dared to buy lobsters from the indigenous fishermen were targeted and harassed. There was, I can only describe it as a literal lynch mob, which cornered two of these fishermen in the building where they processed their catch. That building was burned down. The RCMP initially refused to do anything about it. This was a very dramatic news story. And then it kind of disappeared. I guess it all got resolved neatly. <laughs> Is that what happened? That's not what I thought happened. No, I, I think that just the national media can only stay in one place for so long these days. And, and I think they just went home while the story progressed. And just this week in another part of Nova Scotia on, on the North Shore, four men got arrested for opening fire. Gunshots, not flare guns. They opened fire, allegedly, on a fisherman from a different Mi'kmaq lobster fishery in Pictou Landing, First Nation. And I don't know where to begin, but with the coverage itself. So, Karen, the Globe and Mail, I noted, did not print the names of the four guys who were arrested for firing gunshots right. at this fisherman. They've yet to be charged. So, you know, the cops haven't released the names, but the Globe seems to know who at least one of them is. Uh, reporter Greg Mercer wrote that the owner of the fishing vessel involved in the shooting is well known in the community for his opposition to the moderate livelihood fishery. But this guy, for some reason, is granted anonymity. And the way that the Globe describes the non-Indigenous fishermen, the fishermen who keep cutting the lobster traps of the Indigenous fishermen, they're described by the Globe and Mail, the paper of record, as vigilantes. These guys are homicidal racist vandals, but they're being described as if they're like like Batman or something. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if vigilante is a necessarily a positive term. I actually missed that. Uh, you'd, you'd sent me a link to the Globe's coverage. I've really been following a lot of this coverage through Angel Moore at APTN. I think a couple of things. Uh, one thing is whenever charges are laid, it's one of those things that we do in journalism where we try to separate the person a little bit from the crime or when somebody's arrested, you know, before it gets to court. So you will always describe, um, oh, gunfire shots happened. You'll describe the instant, but you won't link the name directly mm -hmm. to it. 
But later on in the paragraph, when uh, they are talking about the individual who's the owner of the boat, has a long history of opposing Mi'kmaq fishing rights, um, they could have named him there. Uh, you're quite right, because they're separating the two instances. They're not saying, because they don't know he's the one that fired the shots or that he was actually involved in the shooting. All they know is that he owns the boat. So they could have named him. I took issue with that. I took issue with, I, I you know, vigilante, I think, kind of cuts both ways. It does have, a, I, I would argue, a bit of a, of a, of a sexy, like, yes, it's, it's a crime to be a vigilante, but it's just inappropriate because a vigilante is somebody who takes the law into their own hands. And as, as I commonly understand that term, they act like police uh, and they, they fight crime. Cutting the, the traps of the lobster fishermen, it's not established that those fishermen are doing anything illegal at all. So they're just vandals if they're cutting those lobster traps. I don't know how they're vigilantes. You know what? That's a really good point. I, I hadn't picked up on that, Jesse. Oh, my God. I'm going to agree with Jesse Brown. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening? Um, I think what is at the heart of this really is racism. And I know the fishermen are saying it's not. But you know how I know, <laughs> you know how I know they're racists um, is because the Mi'kmaq do have a right. They are a nation. They have sovereignty. And the fishermen all along have been trying to argue as if those things are not true or are not facts. And they're not recognizing that the Mi'kmaq have uh, rights and not privilege and have a nation-to-nation relationship with Canada. And they treat them more like they're an interest group. And then based on that, they're going out and uh, some of them are going out and committing these acts of violence. And I, I just don't know how you separate that from racism. This is not the first time either that this kind of violence has flared up. There were shots fired back in 2001 when the earlier conflict took place um, at Burnt Church. And I remember uh, Maureen Gugu was out there for APTN and Trina Roach, who you've had on the show, was out there for APTN. This gets physical and it gets scary and it gets dangerous. I noticed also that the fisherman, Gary Denny, Mm -hmm. when he went out, he was going out to check his lobster traps to see who had been cutting them. And he came across the boat Boat swerved, according to Denny, and nearly caused his boat to flip because he's just going out in this little 16-foot aluminum boat, right? So there's that. And then afterwards, they fire shots at him. And his wife and kid had just been out on the, the water a little bit before, which I think is important to, to mention. Like These are like regular people. They're families. They're going out and doing something they have a perfect right to do. And to your point, these to me are hate crimes, the way they're being attacked for who they are and what they're doing when they've got a legal right to do it. Yeah. I mean, the argument was given a lot of of credibility, and I heard it on CBC and elsewhere, that like, no, this is just about the commercial fishermen are just saying that the, uh, the indigenous fishermen have to play by the same rules, and there's a conservation argument. That argument, I think, was just absolutely factually destroyed by, by Trina Roach when she was on the show and elsewhere, showing just by order of magnitude, the differential in scale here. There is no conservation argument. And You know, this was a story that I don't think it's detachable from looking at this through a lens of race and racism. I also just feel like, why does something have to get burned or shot for this to be news again? In between September, when we first learned of this, and now with these arrests, there were major progressions in this story. The initial First Nation that that launched a moderate livelihood fishery went into talks with the federal government prompted by this conflict. And those talks fell apart. Mm -hmm. That's a major development. Those talks broke down. The federal government was not providing anything that could be accepted, is my understanding of what happened. Karen, from like a news boss point of view, 
Isn't this a, an amazing story? It's kind of got everything. I hate to be so crude about this, but we are in a crude business. The images, the pictures from this new story of like flare shots across the water in the middle of the night, boats being sunk and the fishing plant being set on fire. Like I could see the movie already. And there's something broken. I mean, we know that there's something broken, but like even when something that is obviously just as interesting as this is slept on and the media doesn't have the resources to stay on a story. And I exclude from that. We do have APTN covering this. We do have Trina Roach. We do have Maureen Gugu. But it was one of those rare instances where the legacy mainstream news media picked up on it. I don't think people were bored by it. It was fascinating. And then it just kind of disappeared. Well, because it, it disappears when it, it gets peaceful or when it gets to be a solution. It, like, I mean, it's an ongoing problem with uh, legacy media reporting on Indigenous issues. I mean, CBC, in all fairness, did have an article. Uh, they did follow on the negotiations with uh, Chief Mike Sack of uh, Spaganagity and kind of why it fell apart, which he kind of mentioned. And that was because they were trying to get them to move into the commercial fishery season, which apparently doesn't really work for their boats or equipment. I don't know a lot about fishing, so I'm just going to go with what Chief Mike Sack says on that because I have never fished lobster. They did have a, a couple of articles following that and the negotiations and how they fell apart. But I think over my years of experience, when we recover these stories, normally every story, whether it was um, Elsie Booktuck, Muskrat Falls, always start out peacefully. And there's a point where just the peaceful protests aren't working anymore. And there comes a point where people are just kind of pushed, their backs are up against the wall. It's usually the Indigenous people who can't move anymore, who, who are stuck. Um, in this case, they weren't stuck. In this case, they were able to go out and exercise their rights, despite everything, right? And I think the, the interesting thing was uh, people commented on how differently the police reacted to the violence of the commercial fishermen against the Mi'kmaq fishermen, how police stood around and watched as lobster was dumped. And you know, people were commenting on, God, if that was reversed, everybody would be arrested in jail. There would be you no know, end to how many police he'd send out. Um, just the difference that that looks like compared to Caledonia. So I think, you know, when there is a flare up of violence, media does move in. What they don't cover well in Indigenous issues are the reasonableness behind it, the negotiations behind it the working at peaceful processes, they like angry warriors still. No, Jesse, the CBC's president does not live in the United States. <laughs> That's what the CBC had to say about a Canada land story that I reported. Um, that did not, uh, by the way, come from CBC News. That was posted by CBC Corporate. Get your facts straight, Canada land. Bad, Jesse. You, you got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, mercy. Here are the facts that are not disputed, Karen. Okay. This is where CBC and I agree. The CBC's president slept last night in the house that she owns with her husband in Brooklyn, New York. And she slept there the night before and the night before that and many nights before that. Over a month's worth of days and nights. She's spent, resided, you might say, in a lovely brownstone that she owns in the in the affluent Borum Hill neighborhood. She has been sleeping in her Brooklyn home, where she has been running the CBC from. 
I think that we can agree that she's been residing in that home, but does she really live there? Who can say for sure? I was wondering at that article, okay, I guess this is, uh, usually you save the controversial part where we get into fights for the end, so I'm, <laughs> here, here we go. I didn't love your article. What what did you think was the point? I mean, there was also some some talk, I think, in the article about, well, this is a pandemic and she is crossing the border and should she, she really be doing that? I, I wasn't really sure that I knew what the point of the story was. <laughs> you weren't alone. Uh, there were... There were... <laughs> There was a very vocal group of people who not only felt that it wasn't news, but that like their thought that it wasn't news was was itself kind of news. And those people tended to be journalists. Like, what's the big deal here? This is not news was something that a small but vocal group of journalists said. And then there were a group of people who thought this was the worst thing ever. Defund the CBC. More proof that the CBC is robbing us blind liberal elites. They were very vocal, too. And then in between those two groups, there were like tens of thousands of people who read the story and I think thought, huh, I know something that I didn't know before about the person who is running a $1.5 billion essential service. It surprises me to learn that uh, this person has spent, you know, over three months of the last eight out of Canada during a time when the CBC has been in multiple crises. So what is the point? I mean, the point is to uh, always the point will be to inform people about what the people who run the media in Canada are up to and tell people things that they might otherwise not know. But I mean, there's a bunch of points. Depends on your point of view. The CBC's policy on this stuff is very clear. Personal travel during the pandemic is not allowed. And, you know, Catherine Tate was doing something that I don't think anybody else at the CBC would be allowed to do. But, you know, a lot of people just thought it was a mean story because uh, the CBC said, well, she was looking after her husband. Actually, that's where I thought. Like, I thought it was a mean story because uh, they said that he had had a procedure. And um, if he normally resides in New York and she normally resides in Canada. And I think the personal travel thing is that they're discouraging non-essential personal travel, right? But insofar as her husband had had some sort of medical procedure, why wouldn't she go back and spend some time with him and make sure that he's okay? Taking that into consideration, I'm just not so sure it's such a sin. I'm not either. And by the way, like their story kind of evolved. At first they said, you know, they didn't say he's sick. At first they just said he's vulnerable to COVID. Not that he got COVID, but he's vulnerable. And then they, as their messaging kind of progressed, they said, well, she was there to care for him. And then finally they said, well, he had a medical procedure. I believe all of that. It, it was sort of delivered in drips and drabs. But I think not every one of us can. In fact, a lot of people are not able to be around loved ones as they die. But I can't fault somebody if you can do that, I would. You might argue that she's more justified in being at her husband's side than she is in running the CBC. Like if, if you're caring for a loved one in an, a different country who requires your care, you might argue that that running the national broadcaster in a different country might be something that you might want to, you know, take a break from while you're dealing with that personal incident. But, you know, I, I'm not reporting because I'm taking a side. And I, I, I just felt like there was uh, some, some information that was pretty interesting. It surprised me. I'll always, Karen, err on the side of like, well, this might make me look like an asshole, but- <laughs> Yes, you do do that. <laughs> like, but if the decision is that telling everybody information might make me look like an asshole, and I know it's good information, I'll, I'll always, t you know, I'll look like the asshole and tell people the information, you know what I'm saying? What did you think the story was? Because I'm still confused by that. Was, was the story about- uh, the where she's living or I mean, you don't think that she's seriously living, um, you know, in the U.S. right now. 
define seriously living. Well, I, I mean, she she's staying there. She's uh, visiting her husband. It's like out of this longer period, it was only a couple of months that she was there, right? Three, three and, and, and change. Um, I guess what I would say is that if we look at the CBC during the pandemic, we've had multiple really serious crises under her watch. It did bring to mind that when there was finally this reckoning from CBC employees, uh, the CBC Black movement demanding accountability for management on systemic racism at the CBC, one blunder, arguably, that Catherine Tate made was she sent a, a memo to all staff, a message of solidarity, where she didn't mention the word black once. So I think that prior to this report of ours, you might say that one of the most frequent criticisms people had of her was that she seemed really out of touch, that she seemed to be kind of trying to placate and govern and lead, but wasn't really engaged or in touch with what the issues were on the ground. And in that context, the fact that she was not on the ground for month after month during the pandemic felt like a news story. Here's the thing about a news story that you don't think is a news story. It's harmless. Like There's so many news stories every day that exist that I don't find interesting. I just don't read them. I, I just don't see what the story really was. I mean, I think during the pandemic, we're all sort of out of touch. None of us are going into offices very much. If people are able to access their office, they're lucky. But I mean, I'm teaching remotely, and I don't know that it really matters whether I'm sitting in Toronto or um, I have plans to go back to Winnipeg if I'm able to. So I, I don't know if it matters sort of where you are. I mean, I think it's interesting what you're saying about being out of touch, but I wonder if that's just not an effect of the pandemic. I think it's a danger for any reporter to like argue from the, from the point of view that like, no, 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 this really matters and it's wrong. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I would say that that caring for somebody who, and we don't know what the, the medical procedure was or how serious it was, but- um, We don't. But caregiving could be considered essential, I think. I mean, I, I'm not sure how you define essential. As always in this pandemic, it just seems that like uh, we don't know what the rules are. This is so- Karen, you know that I have endless respect for you as a journalist, and I would be I would be probably oh, not only not only proud and happy, but probably uh, it would probably be in my best interest to have somebody like you uh, as a sounding board when, when I'm determining whether something is newsworthy or not. What I'm saying is, I can fully accept that reasonable people might disagree on whether or not that merited a news story or not, but I take issue when somebody tells me that it was factually wrong. It wasn't. It was a true story. We, we can argue about semantics about uh, <laughs> at what point are you living somewhere. But for the CBC, from its corporate perch, to say, uh, basically call this fake news, eh, I stand by the story. Did they call it fake news? Uh, I think they said, get your facts straight. Facts still matter is what Chuck Thompson said. Ooh, yeah, that's harsh. The facts in the story are correct. So that's, that's, that's all. That's all. That's all. Oh, great, Jesse. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. 
It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Karen, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we like to duly note on this program things that uh, should be news and should get more attention. What do you have to duly note today? Carl Dockstader, uh, all charges against him dropped. He'd embedded with uh, land protectors down at Caledonia who are protesting against uh, housing development. And um, he got arrested for uh, being a journalist <laughs> at the site, but doing things that the police believed didn't count as journalism, making the police the arbitrator of when you're a journalist and when you're not. So they had charged him. He made two court appearances. Uh, the first court appearance, he was allowed back. They restricted his access back to the camp at 1492 Landback Lane. So they allowed him to go back and continue reporting from there. That restriction was lifted. And then uh, he made a second court appearance, which was just kind of like a procedural thing. But the Crown attorney apparently dropped charges. They said that they didn't have anything to proceed on. So this is, first of all, great news. Mm -hmm. But it also, you know, for, for me, because I'm still at the CAJ and I'm on the advocacy committee, this whole case really raised a lot of questions for me. Because there is the question of, like, if you're a journalist and you put down your notebook and you have coffee with somebody, you know, are you putting yourself at risk by the police, you know, under certain circumstances saying, well, drinking coffee is not journalism? Carl believes, and he doesn't even know to this day why the police decided to lay charges, but they, he feels that it was because he maybe did some singing and he uh, participated in a lacrosse game. And mm -hmm. for him, that was relationship building with the, the community he was reporting on. We don't really know. But where I got concerned is if these sort of things go forward in the courts, you know, very often as Indigenous reporters, when we go into communities to report something, there will be ceremony. You know, some communities feast everybody who comes in. 
you might smudge, you might do a pipe ceremony. And I don't want the courts looking at that and saying that we're not being journalists when we're doing these things. This is part of our relationship with communities. So I'm glad that it didn't go to court and it's not sticking around, but the CAJ actually, we're going to be putting together a Indigenous committee and we're going to be taking a look at best practices in these land action situations where there are injunctions. And we're going to try to go and reason with police if they can be reasoned with about what we need to be able to do in terms of being there and having access and being able to bear witness to events as they unfold, because there still is a lot of danger. And we've seen it um, time and time again, whether it's Ipper Wash, uh, whether it was Gustafson Lake, of instances where the police reaction is too large for what's happening and people get hurt. And so you, you do need to have journalists there to bear witness, to keep an eye and to inform the public on what's happening. So wish us luck. <laughs> I wish you luck. And, and, you know, you said a moment ago that you don't want the courts deciding on when a journalist ceases to become a journalist because they did something or participated with their sources and relationship building. I, I agree. I don't want the courts making those determinations. I sure as hell don't want the cops making those determinations, which is what happened in this case with Carl Dockstadter. And though I am very pleased that those charges were dropped, pleased for Carl and pleased for journalism, it remains a disturbing case to me because they, they did effectively block him from reporting for a period of time. And I don't want that to be a tool in the cops toolkit that uh, at a critical moment they can have a journalist removed from a story and then maybe later those charges get dropped because it's fraudulently uh, you know alleged uh, th that should not be something the police can even do completely agreed good luck and duly noted i have one i have one because you sent it to me actually you texted me this interesting story that uh really everything about this story makes me want to learn more about it i didn't even know that google had an ethical artificial intelligence team but they have a working group that is dedicated to pursuing ai ethically and they have this star researcher or they had a star researcher named timnit gebru and she did some interesting work on how algorithms in artificial intelligence can end up being discriminatory. And uh, facial recognition software is way less accurate with uh, racialized people than with white people. And that leads to false positives and that leads to racial profiling by a robot. This is just really interesting stuff. But what made this a news story that you sent to me was that uh, she doesn't work at Google anymore. She has been fired. And it has to do with some research, some preliminary research, or at least that's the reason being given. Anyhow, I encourage people to check out this story at the MIT Technology Review and read up on this. Yeah, you know, it, it really is important work, Jesse, because, I mean, the facial recognition is one of the places where early on this was noticed. It's because when you're, when you're doing machine learning, you have a test set. And so they were using test sets that were completely composed of white people. There was actually one MIT researcher, not this one, but a, a different one, who had to wear a white mask when she was coding because the machine could not see her face because she was black. Machine learning means that you pick up the biases that already exist and algorithms become sexist and racist all the time. So it's extremely important work. And, you know, what I thought was a little chilling about this case is that she just had a preliminary paper. I mean, you, you do research as a work in progress all the time. And, and somehow for doing this preliminary research and 
presenting it at a conference, she ends up being let go. Research is somewhat sometimes connected to journalism, right? Like it's, there's something similar about the pursuit of truth. And um, I find it chilling that Google would let her go. Duly noted, Jesse. Karen, every time we talk about this case, like a content warning is necessary. It's so disturbing and awful. It is necessary to go through the facts of it just so people know what we're talking about. But um, to Indigenous listeners in particular, this is disturbing stuff. Some breaking news coming out of Thunder Bay, a legal case that's made news coast to coast. A man charged with manslaughter after throwing a trailer hitch at an Indigenous woman in Thunder Bay has been found guilty. Braden Bushby of Thunder Bay is a person who went ice fishing, got very drunk, got rowdy, told his friends, let's go yell at some hookers. But instead, he threw a heavy metal trailer hitch out of the window of a moving car. He threw it purposefully at a complete stranger. It struck her and it killed her. Not right away. That took months for Barbara Kentner to die. Braden Bushby was charged at one point with second-degree murder, but that charge was reduced to manslaughter, and on Monday he was found guilty of that charge. Tanya Talaga wrote about that in the Globe and Mail, and what she wrote was that there is no pleasure in the brief respite. The charge should have been second-degree murder as it was originally before it was reduced to manslaughter for reasons I will never understand. Mm -hmm. Karen, can I ask you to reflect on what I think is a painful story for a lot of people, but some people in particular? This is a hard story for all of us. Like when I I saw it on the list of things we were going to talk about, I think I, you know, I had to take a a deep breath. I I, I don't even know where to begin, Jesse. We've been covering missing and murdered Indigenous women for so long, and they're, they're hard stories. And I think to some extent, even though I have become desensitized to it, every now and then there's just one story that really kind of hits you. And I guess there's there's some, everybody talks about this story in the community in relation to Colton Bushy. We remember Colton Bushy when we remember this case and Colton Bushy was a really hard one for Indigenous people to swallow because, um, of course, the man who shot him in the back of the head was found to be not guilty, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody's looking at this one. I think the the weight of it, weirdly, is that somehow this case has to make up for that case. I, you know, there, there's a connection there, and I, I I've been trying to think about all night why the the two cases hurt in the same place. I just know they do. There's an open wound there, and. You'll see a lot of Indigenous people mentioning the two cases in conjunction with each other. The charges were reduced in part because they couldn't bring a jury in uh, because of COVID. But these aren't, like, are these really logical reasons to reduce a charge? I mean, they're, they're reducing it on technicalities. And that was a lot of the discussion, I think, on Facebook and on social media that the charge needed to be murder not manslaughter. I also, just as a as an aside on it, I just uh, tweeted out some stuff about this because Drills for Human Rights has been doing a series of uh, talks with BIPOC journalists on a variety of subjects. 
and they revisited uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. And I'd been doing some research on it, and I'd just been noticing the drop-off. I, I mean, I hear from the families, uh, particularly I've been in touch for years with Gladys Tolley. I was one of the first reporters who told the story of uh, her mother's death. And we've always been in touch over the years. And she says, like, no one's paying attention to us anymore. So we have this big inquiry. And the coverage of missing and murdered Indigenous women was already dropping off before that. And then there's kind of a little spike at the inquiry. And then it, it just kind of goes silence. And I feel like this one story, because it's been going on for so long, it was, it's been going on since 2017, is sort of the, the last name that we know, and that so much of this is going on and just not getting covered. And I also noticed that the headline was the same on several of the stories. Uh, Willow Fiddler did a really great job for the Globe and Mail. Like she was, she was clearly there and talking and engaged with the family. And I think did the story the way that it needs to be told. But a lot of the other ones just went with the CP story. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's because of the pandemic. Like, could they not get a reporter on the ground? I, I, I'm, I'm not sure why. I think in uh, APTN's case, it's because they, they have a vacancy in Thunder Bay. So uh, they did the CP version of it. But it all had the same headline. It was all told in the same way. Um, Barbara was in, only in Willow's story did I feel that she was really humanized, that we really remembered that this was a, a person of value. Other reporting was very cold and very technical. And I feel like we're backsliding back into um, an era, like sort of a a pre-2014 era of the way that we don't cover these stories and when they are covered, are not covered in a way that really humanizes the victim. Jody Porter was covering this. Willow Fiddler did an excellent job. For some journalists, this has been an occasion to completely rethink how these things are covered and... um, I don't want to overlook those who I think are trying to practice things differently, but the wire stories do seem clinical and, and insufficient. And uh, but it is it does take some unpacking to understand what it is about this story. I've been thinking about that a lot too, and I know you know our team reporting Return to Thunder Bay. We're talking to uh, Barbara's sister Melissa, and they were there covering this. And I think that they, that the final episode of that series did an excellent job. Ryan gave voice to this idea. Let me try to just think out loud and you'll tell me what you think about the way that I'm like, I feel like with Colton Bushy, Gerald Stanley was acquitted, not because the jury could have possibly believed that ridiculous theory about the magic bullet uh, gun error. The idea that he pulled the trigger and like five seconds later it went off or whatever it was called. I feel like that jury made their decision on a different grounds. And that grounds was that Gerald Stanley cannot be convicted because Colton Bushy had it coming uh, because he was doing something wrong. He was trespassing or stealing or whatever it is the jury thought. That falls outside of Canadian law. You're not allowed to shoot somebody for trespassing. But perhaps that case is a open wound for so many because the idea that Colton Bushy was responsible for his own death was somehow validated in that court and, and not in an honest and forthright way. And so it's almost like there's a search for a perfect victim 
to find out if it's even possible for indigenous people to get justice. And what more perfect victim can you imagine than someone walking down the sidewalk minding their own business? And mm-hmm. and even in that case, the case was made by uh, Bushby's lawyer that she somehow was responsible for her own death. That didn't work this time, but the fact that this murder was not tried as a murder leaves that wound open still. I think that's part of it. You have to be the perfect victim, but you still don't get justice even when you're the perfect victim. You get some fraction of it, some version of it that's different than what what I would get, you know, if it were me who was struck down on the street. Hmm. You know, I'm thinking again, you remember when uh, Christine uh, Gurnier resigned from uh, CBC on air? Remind me. She was the Yukon Morning radio show host. She's an Indigenous woman. And yeah, yeah, she was complaining about the CBC journalistic standards and practices. But she she made a speech live on air and did her resignation live on air. And, you know, there was something that she said that I didn't catch it the first time I heard it. It was the second time I heard the recording that I caught it. She made some mention that if she ever went missing, she felt like just now being on CBC, being a host, she would finally be famous enough or important enough, they would have to go look for her. What struck me when she said that is that's exactly what I was thinking when I was at APTN. It's like, I'm finally important enough that if something happened to me, they would have to go look for me. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's, you know, at the, at the heart of everything we want to be covered as people when these things happen to us because we're important. And we want Canada to see that we're important enough to matter. Karen, thank you. And thanks, Jesse. That's shortcuts. You can email me about it. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Karen, where can people follow you? My Twitter handle is actually at Karen, K-A-R-Y-N underscore Pugliese, P-U-G-L-I-E-S-E. That's where you'll find me. There it is. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. 
A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.